week thought of, which I put it, he said, God said what? Seriously? He came to the elders and, and said there's things that God has said that are hard, hard for us to um, understand maybe, but harder yet to live and to obey. And so we decided that we would go ahead with a series that addressed five of these ideas or commands that we see in scripture. And today, Mayan is going to be the one, be holy because I am holy. So let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day that you have given us. Thank you for the freedom to worship that we have here at our church. Thank you for the enthusiasm of the body to worship you, bring glory to you, to love one another, to be having the kind of fellowship that people desire and that you desire for your family. We pray, Lord, that you will open our ears and open our minds to your word this morning to see how it is that we can obey this hard command to be holy because you are holy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you probably know that um, a short time ago, Mike finished the series on 1 Peter. And I'm going to have just a real little bit of crossover with some of what he taught because our main text comes out of that book of the, of the Bible. But I'd like to say that 1 Peter kind of sets us up when he opens up the book of 1 Peter with words of encouragement. He reminds us that because of God's great mercy combined with our faith in Christ, we have been given a new birth into a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and in an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade that is kept in heaven for us. But then he follows these words of encouragement with something that seems like an impossible command, which is our text, which is this title of the message today. But let me read for you from 1 Peter verses 13 to 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, I can put that up. There, I'll start again. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Today, I'm, uh, Mike talked a little bit about this, and he talked about it um, primarily from the point of view of positional holiness, which I'll define in just a little while. But most of my focus today is going to be to be holy in all that you do, the practical aspects of holiness. And I'll get into the distinction between these uh, two types of holiness that all who believe in Christ have, or, or at least work toward. But before we consider, really, this challenging command on how we could live holy lives, and what it, we need to look at first what it means to be holy. 
and whether holiness and godly living comes naturally to us. Well, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of being holy? Probably some of what you see up here on this slide. Set apart or distinct from the world, dedicated or consecrated to God, devoted to the service of God, consistent obedience to God's commandments. You may also think of some other things, such as walking by the Spirit and not the flesh, bearing the fruits of the Spirit, such as love, joy, peace, patience, and more. Or it may be that um, you think of holy is saying and praying and really meaning, not my will be done, but your will be done, Lord, or not for my glory, but for your glory. You may think of a lot of these kinds of things when you think of what it means to be holy, but what really is our bent, our natural human tendencies or inclinations? Is it to live in these ways day in and day out, 24-7? So let's look at what scripture really says about that as to what is our bent. How easy is this for us? Well, despite being made in God's image, each and every one of us were born as sinners. Yeah, it's true. This may not be what our children looked like always. Uh, there may have been those smiles and everything, but at times we saw in them something that told us that that image of God has been somewhat tarnished or corrupted and it came to them because Adam and Eve brought sin into the world, and that is what resulted in a change in human nature. Romans 5.12 affirms that every human child born into the world inherited a sin nation, nature from our father, Adam. John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Paul described our sinful nature very clearly in Romans 7, verses 18 and 19, when he said, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Paul went on uh, in, to say in Romans 3, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And to take this even a step further, looking back into the Old Testament, Jeremiah described our fleshly nature in this way. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, if this sounds extreme and very negative way of looking at things, if you think I'm exaggerating, with what our fleshly nature is really like. We really need to just take an honest look at human behavior throughout history. From the time of Noah, when human nature was described as every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all of the time, right up to today, sinful behavior is common of the human condition. Today we see sin promoted all around us, promoted and embraced, it's in the lyrics of popular songs, it's in movies and TV programs, it permeates the web, the internet, 
and pop-ups. Profanity has grown and become much more acceptable in recent years. It's even blatantly, sin is even blatantly incorporated into political platforms in the form of abortion and same-sex behaviors. So it is everywhere, even on our best of days. Those of us who even know the Lord, sin is present. It may not be flagrant sin, but nonetheless there is probably sin present, even if just in our thought lives. So given this understanding of human nature, did God command us in this Peter passage to do something that's not possible? Well, God knows us better than we know ourselves, and thankfully, he loves us and is full of grace and mercy. He has provided a way of escape from this condition. And this is what we're really going to emphasize this morning. God's way, his plan to overcome our natural fleshly tendencies so we can live holy lives in all that we do. And God's way of escape has to begin with personal recognition of our human condition, our need to change, our need to repent, our need to turn away from sin. It has to begin there. But this understanding, even, doesn't come naturally to a person who is spiritually dead. If we are dead in our sins, as Paul said in Ephesians 2.1, and following the ways of the world and the cravings of the flesh, we need something to awaken us out of that spiritually dead condition, to quicken us, as some translations say. So, as we examine how to get out of this predicament, it's necessary to pause for just a minute before we go into the practical aspects of this and look at the fact that there are those two types of holiness that I mentioned when I opened up. And Mike did mention this term, but didn't spend a lot of time on it several weeks back. He mentioned the term positional holiness, and positional holiness must come first before practical holiness can take place. Only then are we capable of developing practical holiness that I'm going to emphasize today. Now, to understand positional holiness, or how we gain, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, how we gain positional holiness, we need to go back to what I mentioned a minute ago, God's love, mercy, and grace towards us. Because even while we were dead in our sins and his enemies, we didn't really have the power within ourselves to awaken from that condition. Only God could awaken us and make us aware of our need. And because he is merciful and full of grace, and he calls those he foreknew and predestined out of this spiritually dead condition. And those he called, he also justified. That's Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. I'm not going to sidetrack this morning into a discussion of predestination or election and free will. But I do want to emphasize one point. That to achieve this condition of positional holiness, God has to do something in our lives. We depend upon him. We depend upon his grace. It is not solely an act of our will. It is the combined act of God's grace and love for us. And then we have to respond appropriately. And this linkage 
of God's grace to salvation is pointed out very clearly in Ephesians 2, 9, and 10. This gift of, which comes because of his grace toward us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Some of you may know who Charles Spurgeon is. He, uh, a nickname that he received somewhere down the line um, is the Prince of Preachers, he did his preaching in the mid-1800s up for a couple decades later. But he said this that I think is relevant to this point. The work of the Holy Spirit is to change the human will and so make men willing in the day of God's power to say yes to his call. We wouldn't even be willing to accept that gift of faith and believe without God's prompting. So, when we say yes to God's call, when our free will is aligned with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, when we accept and receive that gift of faith that we just mentioned in Ephesians 2, and we accept Christ as our Savior, and believe he paid the price for our sins, past, present, and future, these are the things that happen. We're born again of the Spirit at that instant. We're saved by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. We're washed from our sin, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and we become new creations justified before God. We're instantly made positionally holy, and forever we have Christ in us, and we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us, guaranteeing our eternal inheritance at that very moment. We are made positionally holy and capable now of moving toward practical holiness. Only after this takes place is those, are those efforts to achieve practical holiness something other than counterfeit, which the unsaved world may attempt to behave in the same way, but it is doomed to fail because it is a counterfeit effort with respect to empowerment to do so and maintain it. Okay, so what is this process that we're talking about that brings us towards practical holiness, being holy in all that we do? Well, we call it sanctification, and that begins at the time we become positionally holy. It's a road or a journey that we get upon, and we're going to be talking about that journey today because that's the main purpose of what I'm teaching about today. We can either cooperate with the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that will help us move down that path, or we can resist and grieve the Spirit's work. When we cooperate with the Spirit, when we submit, these are some of the things that occur. We will conform, it will conform us to the image of Christ. It will transform and renew our minds so that we know the will of God and then are able to do the will of God. It will increase our desire and ability to imitate Christ. It will empower us to resist the sinful cravings of the flesh. And then there's something that 
Peter talked about extensively in the first epistle that also helps lead us towards practical holiness, and that's suffering. And here's where I'd like to, um, there's a couple places this morning where I'm going to talk a little bit about personal experiences that, um, that relate to this concept of suffering and, and a few other things, as you'll hear later. But most of you know that I lost my wife, Robin, of 40 years to cancer last April. And it's been the most difficult thing that I've ever had to face in my entire life. And Robin suffered in varying degrees over these years as she fought her cancer. But I've endured a different kind of suffering. You know, she suffered physically, emotionally, and um, for me, there has still been suffering, but it's different. But it's associated with loss, and a lot of you may have experienced that kind of suffering, but nonetheless, it is suffering. But through this grieving process, God has revealed to me that I had an awful long way to go. At the same time that I was preparing for this lesson, I was experiencing a lot of, of what happened as a result of losing Robin. As I poured out my feelings to the Lord over and over and over, uh, I prayed as part of that Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And he showed me blind spots, and I bet we all have them, about sin in our life that is getting in the way of even allowing him to comfort us in these times of suffering. But I'm learning from this a lot, and I'm learning to accept this loss and heartache as a form of godly discipline, which actually is having a cleansing effect on me, and that cleansing effect will help us move down that path of sanctification towards practical holiness. Hebrews chapter 12 actually says that through discipline, which almost always involves suffering of some kind, we're able to share more in God's holiness. So you see that link of discipline, suffering, to holiness. Well, how does hardship and suffering yield holiness in us? Wouldn't it be more likely that if you're suffering, in whatever the way may be, that what we're looking at there is someone who's going to do a lot of grumbling, complaining, maybe anger in what's happening to them. They may fall into despair. How is that going to make us more holy? Well, without the Holy Spirit's comforting counsel, some of those other things might be more likely. Let me turn a little bit back to Robin's situation as she struggled with physical pain and discomfort and other emotional things during her cancer treatment as well as just the effects of the cancer. Well, she had actually achieved that positional holy state a long time earlier when she was saved, and she had the indwelling Holy Spirit to comfort her through each and every valley. But over the years, what did I see as the suffering increased in her? I saw more peace and contentment as the circumstances actually grew more difficult. And I bet a lot of you 
would say, if you were close enough to her, you would have said the same thing. That as more suffering came, she became more holy. What, how could that happen? We're going to look at, in just a, a minute here, some of the ways that suffering can draw us nearer to God and to make us more the kind of people he wants. And I think we saw that occur in her over these last few years as God drew her nearer to him. So, suffering can come in many forms. And, you know, I talk about the suffering that we had in the past several years, but it can come in way other ways. And you know what? Every one of you is going to experience suffering at some point. You may have lived a very good life. You may have had very little suffering, but it will come. It could come in the form of illness. It could come in the form of a lost, of a lost loved one. It could be as some kind of persecution in your life. It could be financial hardship and loneliness, old age. And there's so many other possibilities that you would say, well, you didn't think of that one. Yeah, because there are so many ways that suffering can come into your life. But God will use suffering to mold us into the kind of people he wants us to be. So I have a list of things up on the screen right now that talk about how suffering can be beneficial to us. It forces us to depend on God's grace because we often lack the power to relieve our own condition. And suffering leads us to repent of our sins, which we can see sometimes more clearly or as futile attempts to obtain pleasure. pleasure. Suffering kills our attitude of self-sufficiency and pride. It reveals our idols and lays them to waste. It shows us that our idols cannot satisfy and they're going to fail us and disappear. Suffering allows us to discern right from wrong and see our sin as we never saw it before. Suffering binds us more closely with other believers and helps us to provide comfort when others need our help. Suffering helps us to think eternally and long for God's promises and become, to become reality. Suffering causes us to remember God's past blessings and to be thankful for those blessings. And finally, suffering increases our faith in our God who said he will never leave us or forsake us. In Hebrews 5.8 tells us that Jesus himself learned obedience learned obedience from what he suffered. Well, obedience is one aspect of holiness, and if Jesus can learn obedience and holy, become more, well, I shouldn't say become more holy, not for Jesus, but, but if he, if it, this is what it says, he learned obedience from what he suffered. I will say if Jesus can learn obedience from his suffering, then we certainly can also. So does all this mean that suffering is a good thing and we should yearn for it in our lives? I don't really think so. But when it does come into our lives, we should accept it 
as something that we know God will use to help transform us into the people he wants us to be. So we're going to look a little bit more into what practical holiness looks like in a person as he or she proceeds through this sanctification process. And um, all of us have recited the Lord's Prayer many, many times, I would say. The older people, probably a lot more than the younger. It was more naturally recited, I think, years ago than it may be now. But what do we say when we say the Lord's Prayer? We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we say that, we are asking God's will to be done. And for us, then, if we're going to pray it and mean it, then we are going to want to do his will. And to do his will is obedience. To be obedient is to be more holy. So, again, back to this other point I said earlier on the definition of holiness. We're saying in a way when we recite this, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. We're saying, I truly want God's will done on earth and in heaven, as in heaven. And as part of that, I will obey and follow his commands. But let's get a little more specific about what it means uh, to, to move towards practical holiness. Even though we may have mentioned some of these, this is summarizing some of these things. There's certain things in our lives that should fade away and certain things that should grow in our lives. As we move down the path of sanctification, it means more full obedience and not rebellion, not partial rebellion, not saying I've eliminated these sins from my life while we cling on to other sins that we refuse to let go of. That, that's a dangerous thing. It means humility and not pride. It means selfless behavior, not selfish behavior. And selfless behavior requires sacrificial acts. It requires us to take up our cross daily. It requires us to think more highly of others and their needs than ourselves. It means contentment in all circumstances, not grumbling or complaining. And it means worshiping one God of all creation, not idols. And idols can be people. It means a fervent desire or longing to know and follow God, not lukewarm attitudes, which are so common in a lot of the church. And it means the courage to proclaim truth or stand for truth, even when there is the potential to be somehow punished or persecuted for that. And we sh so we should have courage and not fear. What it comes down to is it's really a high standard to say, we have achieved practical holiness, and none of us are there. None of us are finished with the sanctification process. We're all a work in progress. And what is happening in each of us during this sanctification process? Most of us are striving to do better, but when we look at ourselves realistically, we may say, well, today was two steps forward, but one step back, so I'm making a little bit of progress. Other days we may say, I think I've taken one step forward and two back. So what is it that can keep us moving more forward than moving backward? God is the one who rescued us when we were 
dead in our sins. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. But we do need to be cooperative once we've been brought into that kingdom. We have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. There's a verse that is often, uh, it's, I don't know, misinterpreted, maybe a good way to say it, or misunderstood. Philippians 2.12 says we should continue to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, this doesn't mean that we are saved by working for our salvation, but rather, once we are saved, we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit, and we are working out the outcome of that born-again experience to transform our minds more and more and to be conform more to the image of Christ. And he who began that good work in us, who transferred us, who, who, that born-again experience that occurred when the Spirit caused us to be born again, he will continue that until our last day here on earth. So sanctification by God is something that we need to cooperate with and there are some things that can impede that. There are several places we can turn in Scripture to know we can impede it or we can help it along. First, we're going to look at a couple things that could help us along in this process. Chapter 4 of James says, If we want to cleanse our hands from our sins and purify our adulterous hearts, in other words, if we want to become more practically holy, we should draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. Well, how do we draw near to God? Well, some ways we do it is by spending time in his word, through prayer, through worship, by fleeing those things we know that tempt us to sin. And drawing near is not a one-time thing. It's, it's a daily, intentional act on our part. If we're not drawing near to God, something else is likely pulling us in a different direction. Let's look at an example. Um, we may have a desire and even a plan to draw near to God each day. So we say we're going to start our time in the Word. Well, some of us start our time in the Word using an electronic device, whether it's an iPad, a laptop, even a phone. We turn it on and we say we're going to God's Word. Well, there is the potential for us to be distracted as we try to start our day in a way that is drawing us nearer to God. Whether it is some news story that pops up, an advertisement, something worse that may actually appeal to our flesh, it could grab our attention and our good intentions have somehow fallen away for that day. So we have to be careful as we even have plans to, to draw near to God. A good thing to do may be, before you even turn that device on each morning, that you would say a prayer to ask God to help you not be distracted, but to stay focused on his word. And I do want to affirm one other thing about drawing near to God here, and that is the thing I just talked a lot about, and that's suffering. Suffering draws us near to God. Another thing that we can look at, 
something that we are familiar with, is that Jesus himself said that unless we abide in him, we're incapable of bearing good fruit, and good fruit is another outcome of practical holiness. He said, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Well, what does abide mean? First, abide is an active command. It's an ongoing behavior. It should be a way of life. It means to come to Jesus, draw near to him, remain in fellowship with him, rest in him, feeling safe in him. So abiding means loving God enough to stay connected the best we can following practices that will just keep us close. It means trusting his words, placing our hope in them. Well, what can impede our sanctification? These are a couple general ideas, and then you have practical aspects to each of those, this drawing near and abiding. But what can get in the way? Well, we've already talked about our sinful nature, where Paul himself said our sinful nature tugs us in the opposite direction but there's another enemy that is at work as well, where our struggle, this is what it says, this other enemy that we struggle with is not a person of flesh and blood, but it includes the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's the devil and his demonic forces who want to devour us and make us unproductive members of the family of God. In Ephesians 6, Paul teaches the followers that this evil spiritual enemy is real. It's not an idea. And these powerful beings, they understand fully our weaknesses and they will attack where we're most vulnerable. So Paul implores us in this chapter to put on the full armor of God when the day of evil comes and we'll be able to stand our ground. And he symbolically links the uh, soldier's armor Two, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God, and prayer. So moving forward in sanctification requires cooperation and intentional behavior. It doesn't come naturally. The indwelling Holy Spirit will help us, but we have to choose daily whether we'll submit in an attitude of humility or whether we will in some way resist. So God knows our weaknesses, and this is where a very important concept comes into play, and that's grace again. Grace was not only at work when it came to our salvation, but grace is at work with respect to our daily decision-making and whether to follow the urgings and promptings of the Holy Spirit or not. And thankfully, this grace that God bestows upon us, empowers us to say yes to obedience. God knows our weaknesses and grace extends toward our tendency to sin. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul said, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Part of God's grace is to grant us wisdom and discernment, and power to obey. 
there was, some of you may be familiar with this, um, there was a deeply religious man who I don't think is identified anywhere, if you do a search, who said this, there, but for the grace of God, go I. And what is he looking at here? He's looking for a man who was going, being led to the gallows to be hung for a crime. We don't know what the crime was, but the point is so important. What is he, he is implying here is without God's help, without his grace, this man who said this knows he would be capable of evil and crimes that would warrant being hung. In his letter to Titus, Paul said, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly, or holy lives in this present age. It's grace that empowers us to do so. We have the Holy Spirit, but we can resist the Holy Spirit as long as we have the flesh nature in us. We need God's grace to help us. The writer of Hebrews ends chapter 4 with encouraging words. He wrote, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, what is our time of need? When we're tempted. You know how scripture says he always provides a way of escape for us when we're tempted. That's our time of need. Because of his grace, he has given us power to turn away, to say no. And without that, again, we would be doomed to fail. That's why we have said, without the Holy Spirit coming into us and being part of that, making us positionally holy, we are incapable of consistently making the right decisions. So will we have achieved perfect practical holiness at the time our souls depart to be with the Lord? No. But he has put us on a path of practical, moving towards practical holiness. Paul refers to that path as running a race, fighting a fight. And God has laid out a path or a race course for each and every one of us. And we're moving towards practical holiness, but are we going to achieve it? No, we're not. Is G we all yearn for Jesus to say at that time that we pass on to be at his right hand, if we are his followers. We hope we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, is he going to only give that compliment to those who have achieved perfect practical holiness? Well, no, it can't be. That can't be the standard upon which we need to achieve in order to be given that compliment from Jesus because no one will get there. But he does have expectations for how we should live our lives and some people who will get that compliment and certainly they will not have fully achieved perfect holiness. I'd like to end with another story about Robin and uh, her race and her fight. And I can't say whether Robin heard 
Jesus say, well done, when she entered into his presence on April 14th? I do feel confident she entered into his presence on April 14th, but did she hear that compliment? I don't know. I hope she did. I do know she ran a very difficult race course and courageously fought a terrible enemy in cancer. And how does Jesus determine whether that race she ran or that fight she fought was worthy of compliment or reward? As I said, we don't know for sure what it is, but we know that perfection, while in these bodies, is not the basis for that compliment that's going to come from Jesus. He expects us, though, to run our race and to fight our fight to the end and not quit early. He expects us to fight for the Lord before the whole, our whole life. And when we persevere in obedience, especially under difficult circumstances, that is especially pleasing to the Lord. And in her own ways, I do know Robin at least did that until the very end. Some of you know she served in the women's state prison for 17 years, uh, taking a Bible study in with a couple other ladies. And uh, that was right up to the final month of her life, which is when they shut off uh, people coming into the prison because of COVID issues. Her example showed me something. I'm not a young guy, 66 years old, but I still got life to live. And her example showed me that I need to finish the race course. I need to finish the fight till my end comes and not give up just because I feel great loss. You know, there was a period, and, and this is probably normal, that for months at least, I hardly wanted to do nothing after she passed away. But God is teaching me. He's teaching me that I need to keep at it and finish the course. I think he has plans for every one of us to finish. We can't rest on our laurels just because we have done a lot earlier in our life. We say, well, I've paid my dues. I'm going to just sit back and I'm going to just watch now. I don't think that is the expectation that Jesus has for us. If we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, he expects us to do our work until the end for him. So what... Um, is Jesus looking mostly for results in our work for him? Things that we can measure. Or is he looking for something else? I think he's looking mostly for something else. Yes, it's great to get good results. It's great to have more people that we can say we brought to the Lord. And we can count them and we can list their names. And we can do a lot of things. But what does he care even more about than those outcomes? Though they are important. He wants our hearts and our love and our worship more than anything. And um, that's my encouragement to you today. Work for him 
try to cooperate with the Holy Spirit to move down this path of practical holiness, but be sure that your heart is in the right place. Remember what Jesus, or what the Bible says about David, a man over, after God's own heart. That's the compliment that he gave about David, and that's something that we should strive for. So, would you, to end this morning, to close, would everybody rise, and we're going to read together as a closing, united prayer together, these words from Psalm 139 and 51 that relate to our pursuit for practical holiness. So let's read together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart,